Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast where I meet other people with famous family members and discuss how that has affected their journeys through life. My guest today is Elliot Steele. You can't go on something and be shit and go, well, my dad's funny. Elliot is a stand-up comedian who has appeared on Comedy Central shows live from the Comedy Store and Roast Battle, as well as BBC Radio 1's Comedy Lounge. What about that time you never came to, you know, the Year 5 Christmas production to watch me play a sheep? Fuck you, Dad. Elliot was nominated for Best Debut at the Dave Lester Comedy Festival and has written and performed three successful shows at the Edinburgh Fringe. Elliot's father is comedian, broadcaster, newspaper columnist and author Mark Steele. My dad will go up there and do an amazing bit about Brexit and be able to rationalise it and be so knowledgeable about it. I can't. Mark presented the Mark Steele Lectures on BBC Two and has appeared on shows including Red Dwarf, QI, Have I Got News For You, Mock The Week, Nevermind The Buzzcocks and Question Time. My dad is a lefty liberal whose first point of call to take the piss out of is lefty liberals. Mark also had four series of his own on BBC Radio 4 including the award-winning Mark Steele's In Town. He's also written several critically acclaimed books and contributed regular newspaper columns for The Guardian and The Independent. Recently, Mark appeared on Comedy Central's Roast Battle up against his son and our guest today, the aforementioned Elliot Steele. Elliot, how are you? I'm really well, thank you. I was just, just, just like, yeah, my mum was like two sentences and my dad's was like a whole paragraph, which is really good, really sort of climbs home the point of this show, doesn't well, it? Well, now is the right time for you to beef up that intro if you think, <laughs> did I miss anything out? Uh, you, you forgot of several of the uni nights I've played at where I've done 15 minutes of material. <laughs> and uh, do you think your dad would be happy with that, you know, slightly depthy intro? Uh, yeah, I imagine he would be. Um, uh, there's probably a couple of things. I've, you know, he'd probably want you to mention uh, several other things that he's done because that's what he's like. And he'd be mm-hmm. like, oh, and I did this and I did that. And then, uh, I mean, if you could mention that I beat him in a roast battle, that would be... Well, actually, to be honest, my first question is, uh, it's quite an interesting thing going up against your dad on Roast Battle. For anyone listening who has never seen uh, Roast Battle on Comedy Central, basically uh, two people go up against each other and try and, you know, say the most mean, cruel things as they possibly can. And they tend to try and get people who are either, uh, they, they, I'd say the best ones are like you and your dad or uh, Harriet Kemsley and Bobby Mayer who yeah. are married, went up against each other. And I know uh, Lou Sanders and Luke McQueen, who are flatmates, are doing it up against each other. So what was that like? It was... It was fun. It was kind of it was kind of weird because me and my dad we we had to make this agreement beforehand of like anything. Yeah, uh, whenever I've done quite a few like roast battles as well with like good mates, and you always sort of have like a thing of going like, "Hey, is there anything you don't want me to bring up?" And if they're not a pussy, <laughs> they'll be like, "No, you, anything's yeah. cool." So we. Uh, so you so you agreed you agreed anything goes anything goes really, and then that it, that was it from there. But 
it it was it was just a lot of fun. It wasn't like because the, the, the thing with the, a roast battle is there's a lot of love in it. It's not just like going up there and going, yeah, well, you suck. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, if I went up there and was like, what about that time you never came to, you know, the year five Christmas production to watch me play a sheep? <laughs> Fuck you, dad. Like he wouldn't have, that, that isn't it. But then I, I went out there and pretended he molested me as a child. Oh, yeah. Which was... No, that's fine. <laughs> which, that one's fine. Which is fine. <laughs> like, it's, but that's, it's odd because that's like kind of the relationship. It was like, we have a good relationship as father and son. And then now his relationship with comedians, it's, it's fine. So the father and son element is something we're going to play on, you know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, I watched a bit of it and um, uh, you, as well, as well as having seen a fair bit of your stand-up and, and you talk a lot on stage about growing up around the estates of South London. Yes, but not, yet, not being from one. <laughs> yes, okay, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. And yet um, your dad hilariously on Rose Battle described you as having grown up in a semi-detached house next to a yachting <laughs> lake. So, uh, yeah. A, how very, very brilliant of your dad, but B, like, how much truth, you know, so no truth, you never lived in a South London estate, no, uh, just around them. So what, what happens, to let people know what happens when you come into, so I came into show business when I was 16 years old. Mm-hmm. What happens when you come into show business at 16 years old and you get picked up quite quickly is someone goes, here's your USP. This is it. And because I was new to the comedy industry, I didn't have like the ability to go, that's not true. That's nothing like that. I didn't, uh, okay. Because right. I, I was just very new to it. And when, just sorry to interrupt, but when you say picked up quickly, do you mean by an agent and they're giving you advice? Or? Yeah, it, uh, not necessarily an agent, but like um, PR agents, uh, people who were trying to push you in a certain direction. Producers, like I had a producer the other week um, message me about being like, going like, oh, we need you to sort of do this thing for us and really sort of working class it up. And I went, I'm not working class, I'm, I'm middle class. Mm. And they went, no, we need the kind of person who's grown up eating tinned food. Right. And I was like, what do you think working class people... You need people... someone from the war. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, get a cat. <laughs> <laughs> what are you yeah. So that's, that's kind of what it is. And what happened is... Um, I sort of at that time just went, yeah, sure, that 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 could be my bio. And in years on, I've looked back and gone, uh-oh, I haven't updated my bio, but now I know. Right. And especially when I'm on stage and I'm talking about, like, I'm not. I just grew up in Croydon. Like, I have this accent. People assume I'm working class. I lived opposite a council state in a lovely semi-detached house. This accent yeah. is a survival tactic, yeah. not a regional twang. That's in- that, that's really interesting, actually, because I so I grew up in Surrey, but not in Croydon. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, but I went to the Metropole in Croydon one night, and I was scared. That was an old club back, way too young for you. But actually, I was going to ask, so you started when you were 16, but how old are you now? 23. Oh, okay, so you're like a you're a veteran of the, of the stand-up scene. I wouldn't say, I think veteran, you've got to have done <laughs> 20 plus years to be a veteran. Yeah. I think I'm a... I'm I'm am sort of a recruit. I was sort of a promising recruit who's been <laughs> promoted and demoted back to recruit. His dad was in the army, so yeah. he got made a corporal, and then they put him back to a recruit. But but most importantly, you're sticking at it, yeah. which is you know uh, the, I believe I heard some at some point that the um, the dropout rate of stand-ups in their kind of first five years is something like ninety percent, something huge like that. So the key is just to stick at it. Yeah, um, unless you're really bad at it, then I do think there are some people you watch. Like, if you watch someone new and they're bad, I always think if people are new and bad at something, like, oh, give them time, you sure. know, they'll learn. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's hard work. If you've been going for five-plus years yeah. and you're still terrible, you don't need this, man. There, there'll be something else you can do. But do- nobody really tells you, do they? I mean, nobody nobody would tell some of those people, do you think? Do you think they'd say it to their face? I think would the you? audience... Um, oh, the audiences do, sure. Would I tell someone to quit? It, it, it depends on their... 
it it depends. Like you can always tell someone like there's always a thing of like just being a comic. I'm sorry to just make this podcast already just all about comedy. I know no, it's all good, but uh, it's kind of you can tell when people uh, there's a story I got of a, there's a comic Nick Cody and one and uh, me and my friends what we do in stand up is we watch terrible stand ups on YouTube like open micers and stuff and and not just open micers but like people just terrible stand including some of our own first clips mm-hmm. and we were watching this one guy and uh, Nick said something that was so right because this guy could edit the video he clearly edited it all but he was terrible at stand up and Nick went dude this guy needs to you can do something else mm-hmm. you've got something else and it's like yeah none of us have any other transferable like if tomorrow everyone went ah we're done with comedy no one wants to go to that anymore I'm du- there's nothing else I can do right like I haven't got a, a skill right I didn't pay attention in school yeah I was trying to show off and get laughs yeah <laughs> so I've not got anything else so if, if that happens then it is literally I'm probably just going to end up on the streets yeah and uh, what you said about the audience tell mm. people, which is true, but I also find that people like the kind of open micers and people you talk about who don't really improve, they have an element of self-delusion where I feel like they probably think that the audience are laughing a lot more than they are or they or they take from a gig what they want rather than what the truth is a little bit. Whereas I think the majority of stand-ups will always who who are good, let's say, will yeah. always pinpoint maybe the one or two people in the audience who weren't laughing and take that away rather yeah. than... Uh, it's, it feels like an opposite level of delusion almost. It, it, I, feel, I always think the odd thing with stand-up is that I just think it requires like a level of self-awareness and I think a lot of people in this job don't have it, yeah. even at quite a high level. yeah, Like that doesn't go away, but it just sort of weeds people out. Um, yeah. So like with me, like I've always had the self-awareness that like my dad is who he is. He's a very respected comedian and I'm coming in as someone's son. Mm-hmm. So I am going to get a leg up in certain things when I first started. I'm going to be able to know how bits of the industry work and stuff. But then you've still got to prove yourself. You can't go on something and be shit and go, well, my dad's funny. And then they'll just be like, get your dad on. (laughs) No, well, I I think that point sums up exactly why I'm interested in talking to people who are related to people who are successful in a similar field. Yeah. Because... um, a lot of people don't want to talk about it. A lot of people don't want to admit it. Whereas to hear you so kind of freely admit, or not admit, but openly be self-aware enough to know that there are elements that will have helped you get higher up at an earlier time oh, God, is, yeah. is really honest, I think, and open. Me, me and my dad, we, we're with the same agency. Mm-hmm. Now, I got it with that agency because they like my stuff. They, were, they saw me because my dad... The way I got into comedy, right, was uh, there's a club called Old Rope. Mm-hmm. Really good new material night. My dad knew Tiff, the lovely Tiff Stevenson, who I sort of everything to. He knew her. She was a fan of my dad. She loved my dad. She found out I wanted to do comedy. She went, come just try it one night there. I did it there. Mike Wilmot was there. Mm-hmm. He saw me. He told Danny off the curb, whose name I probably shouldn't use, but he told this guy, Danny, who I also owe my career off the curb. Danny just emailed my dad and went, hey, does Elliot want to come do a spot down at my club one time? My second gig, I did that, and Danny picked wow. me up. That's how I got into comedy. Wow. But I could have... I, and that, that's a complete leg up. Mm. Like, it would be ridiculous of me to sit here and go, no, I grafted and did the miles when I first started. I didn't. Mm. But I still had to do all right at yeah, those gigs. Yeah, if you were shit, they wouldn't have picked you up. Oh, uh, yeah. Which is, which is something that people forget probably when they're slightly enviously... And probably, I dare say, not to your face, but if anyone were, were to say, oh, well, you, he's only there because his dad is, that's that's bitter jealousy and envy. You still have to be good to be able to do it. But there's 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 different kinds of legs up in this game. Like, there, there'll be people who will go... You know what I mean? Everyone... 
everyone's going to get a chance at some point. Mm-hmm. This is the thing with comedy. There's never a point like there's times where I have fucked up because of my arrogance. That way I came into comedy came detrimental years later okay. because I believed my own hype mm-hmm. and I hadn't put the work in. How did that manifest itself? Um, I was just going out and partying a lot and uh, I was sort of doing a fringe one year and the show wasn't it was it was an all right show the worst kind of show you can have is average because it doesn't it doesn't make you you go ah that'll do rather than like this is bad i need to work on it right. and whereas like this year i had the best show i've ever written and it's a good thing i had that average show because it taught me how to work properly mm-hmm. but I, I just sort of fucked about and stuff because i believed my own hype mm. which if i'd probably had to graft at the beginning i wouldn't have done yeah so it can be detrimental. It can come back on you, I find, that way of... Because uh, I came in and was like, yeah, comedy's easy, this, this, this. I'll just do... And I was too young as well. Mm-hmm. I think I started way too young. Because um, you, you you have to become an adult very quickly, which I, I didn't do. Still haven't done. No. Like, uh, and because comedy can... You have to become an adult quickly, by what I mean, and like, learn to go home after a gig. Right. Do your set. I think there are, but there are people a lot older, you know, there are proper adults who are still not going home after gigs. No, no, exactly. But you see them and do you know what? They're the biggest wake up calls because uh, if you see someone, not on the circuit, like if, if you're doing like a weekends at like, uh, like the big comedy clubs and mm-hmm, stuff, mm-hmm. people stay around and have a drink going out then. That person's a professional comedian. They do this as a job. But... There's some absolute states of people you see who've been on the circuit for like 25 plus years. Mm. They're nice guys. They haven't changed their set. They haven't done anything. And they just sat there depressed after a gig, drinking a beer, trying to, hey girls, uh, I was just on stage. And you go, and that's when I go like, how do you not become that? Right. How do you you stop that coming through your life? And then you look and they'll go, oh, it's easy for like such and such. You know, he just came famous and that that was that done. And you're like, all right, how did he... Well, he went to Edinburgh, he kept writing and then, you know, anyone's fame, you can... You know, people love it in this game to go like, oh, someone like Michael McIntyre. Mm. Oh, it's easy for him. He just goes out and notices things. No, no, he doesn't. He gets up every day at six and writes and he goes out and he works hard and yeah. he does everything you have to do to get to that level and then stay at it and be on top of yeah. the game. But... You can boil success down to, oh, well, it was easy for him. He just got signed up to a big agent. He put him on TV and that was that. And you're like, yeah. no. Do you know, well, what's interesting about you bringing up Michael McIntyre, and I think I brought him up in a previous episode as well, is that he is an example of someone who, and I completely agree with you, absolute workhorse, deserves all the success he gets, but also is just a genius observer oh, of, so of things. But, so he's one of the very rare people who gets crossover success so he's gone over to primetime as well in terms yeah. of television stuff but he's got his peers a lot of his peers Stuart Lee for instance giving him shit for being mainstream and you know selling out or whatever and I'm just like even at that top top level where people get really successful it can still breed envy and, and I find that really odd uh, it's, it's an odd it's, it is odd I don't get me wrong I, I'm a big fan of both like I'm a fan of stand-up comedy hmm. I'm not uh, I love my favourite comedian will be Doug Stanhope but I also will enjoy watching Michael McIntyre yeah. because I enjoy stand-up comedy. I enjoy different perspectives and things. Like at the moment, I'm a big fan of Dave Chappelle. I love what yeah. Dave Chappelle does. Yeah. But then I'll also go and watch like Whitney Cummings or and uh, it could, uh, and 
So I find like in stand-up when you get someone like Stuart Lee, Stuart Lee, who I'm, again, huge, huge, huge fan of, the Princess Diana routine on his special at the Glasgow stand mm -hmm. is one of the best routines, one of my favorite routines mm -hmm. of all times. I'm a huge fan of him. However, <laughs> I don't understand why he's seen as like this like underdog, like he's like the go-to. He's mainstream alternative. He's what people, he's first choice, I don't like the mainstream. Yeah. Like, if you really don't like the mainstream, you'd be a Jerry Shadowitz fan. Yeah, or yeah. You'd be, It's just like a sort of pompous way of people go, um, and not Stuart Lee himself, but I find a lot of his fan base are like this uh, thing of, uh, oh, yeah, I don't like McIntyre or some, somebody of that stature or Catherine Ryan or Romesh, so I watch Stuart Lee. And you're yeah. like, who also had a primetime sure. BBC Two yeah. television and show. And has been on BBC Two since the late 90s yeah. as well. But I think the interesting, or the, the, the thing that gets me a bit about it is I, I just feel like there should be slightly more teamwork involved in that, you know, you're all ploughing the same furrow and you're all different types of artists and different flavours of comedians. But why then stab someone in the back who's, who's trying to do the same thing? It strikes me as slightly, you know, you can only almost really do that when you've got to a point where you feel safe enough in the work that you're going to get where it's not going to affect you. And that, to me, is kind of contradictory. Yeah, right? I find, okay, I find, I find, I was speaking about this funny enough to my dad the other day, and he completely agreed. He was, uh, the reason stand-up in this country, and I think, not just stand-up, but, like, we're behind Americans in terms of sitcom, mm -hmm. in terms of, you watch a show like Always Sunny in Philadelphia, it takes so many risks. Sometimes it misses, but it doesn't matter because it lands the majority of the time. It's one of my favorite shows, it, and they just take risk after risk after risk. And that's because in America, they have, if you're a good young stand-up, you're put into a writer's room, you're made to work with people, and sure, it can be cutthroat, I'm sure it can be bitter, um, but over here, we don't do that. How do you get seen early on if your dad's not a comedian? Yeah. You enter a comedy competition. Yeah. Or, what or do, do you, a course. Or do a course. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got to enter a comedy competition. So you're immediately pitted up against other stand-ups. There's an immediately an environment put into your psyche that you have to compete with these people. Then you have to go up to the Edinburgh Fringe. What are we doing at the Edinburgh Fringe? We're competing for audience mm -hmm. members. We're competing for reviews. We're competing for the nomination on the award so we can turn around to our peers and go, ha-ha, you see, I am worth something. Mm. So you then have to do that. So you're completely competing, competing, competing. Now you've got to go on a panel show. Okay, what do you do on a panel show? I've got to get my words put in. So you're competing. So we have this environment that makes us compete that then when you're at the top of the game, of course you're going to turn around to people and be like, ha ha, fuck you, I got here, but you yeah. didn't get here the way I got here. I really had to struggle to get here. And we don't go, uh, hey, you're good at this. You're good at this. Here's, all right, you're doing your gigs and stuff. Here's some money. Mm. So you can live a little bit. Mm. Sit down and work together. Sit down and try and do something with each other. Yeah. But we don't do that here. And yeah. then we have uh, we wonder why we're all we wonder why we're yeah. all against each other. It's actually really it's really toxic to think about. And it reminds me we were talking about so Elliot and I have played football together before. And we were talking about uh, in the game that we played and Rob Beckett used to play in it. And yeah. when I I started doing stand up around the same time Rob did, so we were in the same kind of um, like the Amuse Moose competition, all of, the, yeah, yeah. The, the kind of same year, whatever. And I just remember one time and I, I'm not I really like Rob he's a great guy and, and what he said was not in any way I, I doubt was actually in any way an opinion or abusive but to me it really hurt me at the time but I walked up to a gig and uh, he was like sat with a group of comedians and he I said oh I'm, I'm Barnaby he's like I know you yeah you do the disgusting stuff right and 
Yeah, when I when I was doing stand up, I, I would tend to go into some darker territories. I think right, it's fair to say, yeah. but at the time, I really took that to being like, "Oh, you think I'm really shit," but he wasn't oh. saying that at all, and that's just my insecurity and yeah. where I was. But that was me already, I guess, feeling competitive. Do you know what I mean? I'm feeling like, oh, okay, I'm being judged by someone else. But the reality was actually different, I think, in that case, probably, in, in hindsight. But uh, so many people with so many different egos and ambition and stuff like that. And and I think the way you described it is true. It is, it is a competition. I've certainly been in so many cars driving to and from gigs up north oh, where you've man. got people slating other comedians who then you see them actively being lovely to in their to their face and I find that really difficult so. yeah it's it's I think in uh, something like comedy what's really important and I noticed this through my dad is he had just a good group of friends who like from the age of about 23 mm. to now he's 59. He He'll been... appreciate you having given out his age, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm 21, I started at 16, and you're 59. <laughs> yeah, if anyone's listening to this, you're, don't book him, he'll be dead soon. <laughs> it's, um, but he... We really better get this out before he dies. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, imagine my dad dying. And then this podcast went out. Well, I'd mostly and then be annoyed. This clip goes round. I'd mostly me. be annoyed because it'll take some proper editing to, <laughs> to edit around that. Um, but yeah, sorry, carry on. Um, it's his group of comedy friends. Mm. They all re respected each other, worked with each other. You know, the late Jeremy Hardy, who died this year, my dad were best mates, uh, my dad Mark Lamar, my dad Joe Brand, all these people. They all came up together. Mm. Um, so there is a way, but the thing that was different back then was comedy was uh, an underground thing. Comedy, there wasn't, there wasn't an industry. Like now, yeah. there's an industry. Someone, I'm on a podcast talking about being related to another comedian because it people will listen to it. It's an industry. People will want to hear it. Back then, there was a guy called The Iceman. Have you heard of The Iceman? No, I haven't. Tell me about The Iceman. This guy's a legend, right? It was, um, Sounds like he should have been in Gladiators. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But his act was he just used to take on a, a block of ice and then get a blowtorch out and just melt it. That would be on before you. Yeah. That would be on... That would happen. And this guy, what we were talking about, people going around for years, that's just what he did. That must have been at Malcolm Hardy's club, surely. Uh, the Tunnel Club. I think he. I think he was on everywhere. Yeah, people so, just put him on because he he just turned up with a block of ice. Yeah, because like, oh, actually, I was going to ask. Um, presumably, you know, having talked to your dad a lot about comedy and and that stuff, is there an element where he, or where you have spoken so much that it's uh, obvious that it's a lot harder for you to, or a lot harder for comedians now than it was for for comics back then, because just because of the scale and the amount of comedians around. <sighs> Yes and no. Mm -hmm. um, I think back then it it was easier in a sense to become a comedian. Uh, how am I going to word this? As a professional or? Mm, yeah, but there wasn't really a professional thing. There wasn't like, but, but there wasn't a circuit. They made the circuit. People like Alexi Sell just yeah. before my dad, Rick Mail. Made comedy because before that it was all you know two Jews walk into it, but that's what they were yeah, up against. Seventies, seventies comedians. Yeah, on on yeah. the end of a pier. That's that's mm. what was going on. So they then went and did their own thing, and then when people started coming to that, it came a thing. But it still wasn't. Yeah, it it was. But that that was the kind of thing they were. Of you course, know, yeah. you know, um, Bernard Manning. Yeah, who you ask my dad? Me and my dad have talked about this. Wasn't a bad comedian for any sense of back in that time of day. If you no. watch yourself, 
horrible person. Yeah. Like, clearly just a, not a nice bloke. Mm. But wasn't bad at that. He was the king of that thing. And they sort of looked at that and went, right, I don't want to do that. And now that's why when alternative comedians, like, well, what you see is alternative are, like, looking at the mainstream and going, like, we don't, you know, look at McIntyre. Well, we don't want to do that, so we're going to walk on dressed as a giraffe and talk about being a giraffe for a day. Yeah. You're like, well, there was a point to be an alternative back then because there was something to fight against. There was fighting it. There was a fight against racism and the, the Thatcherism. Thatcher, yeah, yeah. yeah. Whereas now you just, what, because McIntyre sells a lot of tickets, You that, that's a silly fight. Yeah, when, so my background a little bit is was developing TV shows. I worked at the BBC in the uh, kind of mid-noughties developing entertainment TV shows. And at the time, it was very much like stand-up on TV doesn't work. So it was just before the Apollo came out. Right. It was very much like, look, stand-up on TV just won't work. People won't watch it. Uh, stand-up is very much just for the clubs. It's yeah. never going to work out. And it takes risks and decisions for those things to change. So then Apollo came and then people, you know, and then Mock the Week came where they engineered a panel show out right. of stand-up and, and things changed like that. And it will have taken your dad and his generation and Alexi's generation before to make those changes. Yeah, definitely. And it's it's something that I think they... Uh, I, feel, I think they, <laughs> they feel like they kind of looked over for a little yeah, bit. Yeah, Because, uh, you know, it exists because they did that. And... I think they feel like they don't get enough props... Yeah, kind of. But then there's still guys on the, the circuit from their generation who I gig with now. And, like, they're also overlooked as, like, people, like, you sort of guys. And, uh, you know, I did it just now. I've gone, oh, I ain't changed his set for years. And it's like, well, this guy, because he went up there and did that, made the circuit for someone like me and my mates to come on to. Yeah. But I find, I find as into, regarding to your earlier question, is it is it's harder now in terms of, uh, that's why I'm in stand-up. I'm seen as working class because my dad's Mark Steele and I've got an accent. Yeah, I'm not working class. Mm. Um, but they pigeonhole you as such for their own benefit in a way. Well, because what working class person can afford to do stand-up? Right. Yeah. You've got... The Edinburgh Fringe is going to cost... Now, there's people up there who do it. They, they are dumb, but they get completely overlooked. You know, the Edinburgh Fringe is going to cost you minimum about 5,000 quid if you want to take a show up yeah you, you're going to need some financial backing from parents you're going to need uh, you, you time hey can I take three and a half weeks off, off work, work? Yeah. which I, I've never had a proper job I can I can do that you know because I was in a, I was in a privileged position so mm -hmm. that's why I feel like when someone goes like working class this that I feel, I feel like a bit of a fraud to be honest that there, there will be someone out there who's working class and just as good at what I do, yeah. it's not going to be given the opportunity. But but you've got that in stand-up now, whereas before, when my dad was going on as a working-class thing, there was like a real, like, stand-ups or working-class. Alexi Sale was working-class. My dad is working-class. Jeremy Hardy is working-class. These people come on here and they're speaking for the working man. And whereas now, if you want to do that, it's kind of like, well, you know, it's you're going to have to get a PR. You're going to have to come and do this. You, mm. you, you, you've got to do the Edinburgh Fringe. And then to break onto the circuit... To, to to do gigs is expensive. You've got to travel back and forth to places for free. Sometimes you're going to spend your day, you know, things that are hard work that, that I wouldn't say 
once you've made it, it's not hard work because that's what you have to do. Sure. You know, I'm sure you've done those nights at a bus station waiting for a National Express mm-hmm. and then you get on and there's a load of nutters on it and yeah. you, you're questioning why you've just done that gig all the way in Leeds for 20 quid. Shows how privileged you are not even to get the mega bus, mate. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just wondering, just thinking about what you were saying, whether there, do you think there's an opportunity for... Um, comedians who have probably you know made money and success out of it to give something back to those people who don't get those opportunities so I was just thinking because obviously Stormzy um, the musician um, gives grants for people to go to Oxbridge for uh, underprivileged black kids who would never usually get a chance to go to Oxbridge uh, to be able to afford to go there I wonder if there's an opportunity for and I'm not naming Uh, any names but people who are successful to give back in some way people do I know know of people who do I know of uh, a few stories I'm not going to like uh, no, that's really good. Uh, but you know, bait up the spot because uh, there are people out there who do a lot of stuff. I know a few people who have just, you know, like working working class comedians from unprivileged backgrounds. I know I have a mate who's a very successful stand up comedian, and I, he does things like that. Brilliant. He just sometimes goes, hey, "Look, I'll pay your rent for the fringe." Look, I'll uh, that it it does happen. That's good. Um, what I love about that most is that I don't know about it because he's so clearly not doing it for his own benefit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, there, there will be people like uh, out there who who do that and they they don't ask for a thing. The the thing is, it's like there's a thing called Comedians Benevolent Fund or something, okay. which is about and it's a good idea, but it's a charity that like who in the scheme of charities is going to give a fuck about stand up comedians who like they're always like we should get people to don- donate and stuff. And I'm like, mm. I don't think the person walking down the street. Yeah. gives a fuck that no. someone that jongler, in a, in a jonglers went bust <laughs> so some people can't, can't aren't gonna be, might have to get a day job no one's going to give so they can't live their life of waking up at 12 in the afternoon <laughs> some, some they're going to have to work an extra 20 hours no one's going to give a fuck about sounds that. attractive to me but I can see your point I'm <laughs> yeah. not sure that many people will get it so so like it, I don't want to slag it like because in comedy like I don't want to slag it off but like I want to take the piss out of it a bit but um You've got you've got these things that exist and these people who do help other comedians out, uh, but I think I think in terms of an industry, it's where the industry is is set up in this country, and it's not like a, we need down with the industry and it's that industry is actually pretty good. You mm-hmm. can make it. You know, you got online now. You look at the success of Mo Gilligan. Yeah, I know Mo a little bit, yeah. right? I remember I was at a, a, me and Mo were hanging out one time before this gig we had to do together. I was like, Hey man, you doing Edinburgh this year? He's like, no, man. He was like, no, I can't, I can't afford that. Like, he's like, I can't, mm. you know. And he was like, I got quoted these things, and I think he talked about it on the Quotes Full podcast recently. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. And then he he later on was going, oh yeah, because I do like a, he was doing like angel comedy and stuff. He was just doing spots, and he's like, and people kept turning up because I'm on it, so I might just do my own thing. Yeah. And I was like, oh yeah, cool, do that, man. Yeah. And then like, I was like, oh yeah, that'd be that'd be a good idea. And now everyone knows who Mo Gilligan is. Yeah. So there are ways in the industry. You could sort of turn around to the industry yeah. and go, I'm not going to do not, it your way. I'm not going to follow the, the usual path. Yeah. yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. 
At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Which, yeah. which then is annoying because like the whole industry then goes to everyone else. Why don't you do it like Mo <laughs> Gilligan and you have to go like, because I'm not going to be, you can't replicate what he's just done because yeah. he paved the way for it. I guess it just shows to follow your own path really and yeah. find, find your own ways. Um, you've mentioned quite a bit about, um, been incredibly open about what it was like and, and what leg ups you've had from being Mark's son, obviously. I'm interested to know whether you think you're a comedian um, because are your Mark's son or almost like despite it? Um, was it something you fought against at any point or was it just always the natural path? I always knew from about when I was eight years old I was going to go into stand-up. Like uh, That's why I never tried at school. Because mm-hmm. well, I, I have a, I don't want to blame it on this, but I have like really bad ADHD. Okay. And uh, when I was just at school, I find school's this thing. The reason stand-up was attractive to me, script writing as well, like when I've done bits of script writing and things like that, the reason those things are attractive to me is because it encourages imagination. It encourages thinking outside of a box. It encourages... Uh, and I got to see my dad when I used to go see my dad's shows. It was like, oh, yeah, he thinks outside the box. He's great at this. Oh, yeah. And also my dad, like... My dad's seen as this hugely rallying political comedian. Mm. Does a little bit on politics, but most of it's about his life or most of it's just about a subject that he finds interesting and then there's a little bit of yeah. po- politics in there. He's just active in the political community. Mm. Uh, political community, the left wing sort of community. Mm-hmm. Um, but clearly, clearly, stuff that's relatable to other people, be yeah. they, be they, you know, in the entertainment industry or not, or, or just normal people. So, yeah, yeah. Know, that 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 side of him and how politics affects him obviously relates to them. Yeah, exactly. And uh, but he, like, when I used to go to shows and see that, I'd just be like, oh, that's cool. Oh, okay. Because this is this is the thing. I think the biggest, and I've always said this, the biggest leg up my dad ever gave me not with agencies not with gigs not with anything like that was i knew it was a viable career option yeah which i think a lot of people don't um and it's it is hard work like even though i've had these legs up and stuff i've had to work hard a lot of times and you know that that's what you got to do so a lot of there's a lot of self-doubt involved in it like when i first started i, I was kind of like shit should i change my name or 
people going to get... When I walk out to a rowdy drunk crowd on Friday night, no one is sat there going, oh, is that Mark Steele's son? And even if they do, these are, oh, that's cool. Oh, that's Mark's son. Okay, I've, I've heard he does stand up. And then they listen, they might like him or not, whatever. That's the, so it doesn't it doesn't really affect no. no one's ever come to see me I don't think because I'm Mark's son no. you have to make that happen yourself but knowing that it's a viable career option is what helped me get through school because I think there are probably a lot of people at school and stuff who are there there's this system I, I, and again it's probably massively wrong but obviously school is like it's a measurement on obedience. How obedient can you be? Mm. Can you do the homework? Can you do this? It doesn't encourage creative thought. Yeah. Because creative thought, we live in this society where, it, well, you've got ADHD, you've got a mental health problem. No, I'm a, I'm imaginative. I, I, I think I, I, this is the way I think, and it doesn't correlate with the way that I, I went to a really shit state school. So my dad, true to his socialist mm. believings, didn't want to send me to private school. Mm-hmm. It didn't, and I'm kind of grateful for it, but I wasn't at the time because I took a lot of beatings. Right. But, but like, but like it, it, that's kind of what you have that makes you a comedian is your outside of the box thinking. wasn't just... I never had a problem with any of the kids at school um, as far as like you get the odd like kicking and stuff, but that was school. Right of passage. Yeah, that, passage. but that happens to everyone. And then yeah. like, I'll speak to my mate Tom Horton who went to like the most poshest of posh schools and they, they're brilliant. you just get a better class of beating yeah because yeah, yeah. they can they can, they've got they've got money back in their billion <laughs> like they can get they get you're getting beat with gold bars oh my god yeah they, the stories he's told me I'm like man this is horrific. you know like when you watch like an American high school film and like the bullying's always so like severe and there's like they'll like involve like this massive prank like the end of Carrie yeah. like the <laughs> level that you have to go to for that prank. You can't do that at a British state school. It's like, where are we going to get pig's blood from? We can't afford pig's blood. We can't blood. afford cellophane to even do the toilet cellophane. Yeah, exactly. So it's just like, oh, we'll, we'll throw this textbook at him. It's one between two anyway. Like, who cares? But that that's kind of the... But it was the teachers that I used to despise the most because uh, I think teachers are people who... Um, want to... A lot of them do want to help. There were some good ones. But I find most of them are people who they get a power trip of what they do and like why do i have to call you sir why do i have to address you by your last name mm. i don't i well because you've got to come in here and learn about this why when am i ever going to use this stuff why, why are you teaching me geography about places that i've not been to or like sure. or sediment here's how rock works this is a sedimentary this is granite and it's like why aren't i learning how tax works why yeah, i learn how yeah. a mortgage works why haven't some why hasn't someone i know like there's this it's massively selfish to make it about the individual but i'm, I'm a comedian that's what i do mm. why aren't some of you there why i got thrown out of college but i was allowed to do one course they allowed me back to do one course and that was media studies mm-hmm. i did it and then six weeks after i was kicked out of college i started stand-up comedy and by the time my results came out i'd been signed i was doing i was mm. you know and i went in i got my results and i got an e I got an E in media studies. Mm-hmm. But now I write scripts for like stolen... Well, I was on the script writing thing with like stolen pictures. So like so my comedy heroes were Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and stuff. So how can I go from getting an E in that to having the ability yeah. to do that? Well, that that's, something's wrong with that system. Well, it's, yeah, exactly what you said. The curriculum isn't set up to actually help in terms of real-life practical things. I mean, I think in, in reality, if, I've just, if I can theorise about it, a lot of education is built to push you towards the next stage of education. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, so it's for 
in a lot of ways, it's for people to then, you know, move on to A-levels and then how good a university can you go to if you're going to go to university. That's the only reason for me why those things were being taught. I went to university, but I was similarly... um, I I did go to private school, which was a complete waste of money because I had no interest in, um, you know, intellectual education at all. I was interested in sport. And I was interested yeah. in girls, and that was pretty much it. Which is as you should be. Uh, well, right, exactly. <laughs> that's, 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 that's the other thing with school. With, like, the sex education class isn't anything... To, it, it, the sex education class, they should be teaching, like, consent. They should be teaching, like, hey, here's... Uh, look, here's what consent is. This mm. is how this works. Because now you have these group... No one knows what it is because we have this generation raised on porn. Hey, look, porn's not real. This is what they should be teaching sure. people. Hopefully they are a bit more now, you'd like I to hope think. so, but they don't... But like, did you, when you said you were working in like TV and stuff, mm. did you get that through university or did you get like start on a runner's job? So, no, yeah, so, um, so I did bad, I did badly my GCSEs and snuck through into sixth form at the same school basically because I was good at cricket and I think they let me through. <laughs> and then, uh, I didn't get into the university I wanted to go to, uh, because I got, I got, um, I got. CDE at right. univer- uh, A level, and one of those was in, and the C was in general studies, right, which okay. is which you had to take, and it was just basically ticking boxes. Um, so I went through clearing, and I ended up going to the University of Greenwich. And the reason I went there, and it's barely even a university, um, is because my cousin was there as a, a sabbatical officer, sports sabbatical officer. So he ran the sports teams, but one of the main reasons he said I should come is because because it's not a, a university that's hard to get into. They had really good football team who were in like booster one football. So I right. played a really good level of football and really enjoyed that and got to hang out with girls and learn. That was when I started drinking and learned how to basically have fun for the first right, time yeah. in my life. Um, but getting into TV, interestingly, I then, so at Greenwich, I did media studies in essence. And the best thing about that was instead of just doing a 10,000 word dissertation, they let you make a film. And I made a film where I um, went on TV shows under a fake name. So I went on Ready Steady Cook <laughs> as this ca- as this character called Simon Sester because I thought it sounded like Siren Sester. And um, I went on like I was in the audience on Trisha, and I went on some other things and did some radio stuff and made a documentary about this character Simon Sester who was addicted to going uh, addicted to the media and kind of you know cut in those little bits. And in the after leaving university, I sent that to a load of TV companies. And I ended up getting a screen test for Children's BBC, right? And went in, the screen test was a 10-minute t- version of a show they did on the CBBC channel called Exchange. It's like a magazine show, quite typical, you know, kids phone in to play games, uh, interviews with celebrities, whatever. So I did a, a lo- an as-live 10 minutes with another presenter. And I remember coming away from that 10-minute as-live show and I was like, I've found what I'm good at finally yeah. like I found what I'm good at I'm brilliant at this they're going to offer me the job right three weeks later I hadn't heard anything <laughs> uh, kind of contacted them they said um, yeah we're not going to give you the job as a presenter but we, we thought your film was really brilliant would you like to come work as a runner and that's how I got my job and then the first thing I did when I went in as a runner they said do you want to see your screen test and I was like yeah and I watched it back and I was fucking awful like honestly like awful and I was trying to be a children's TV presenter. Which, yeah. But I wasn't myself, and there was only one bit in it. I remember when I when I finished it, I was like, like I said, I was like, oh, I'm brilliant. I found what I'm good at. But if I don't get this job, it'll be because of that bit where the kid phoned in, and I took the piss out of the kid a bit. Yeah. Like, just gently ribbed him a bit. And I watched it back, and I was like, 
the only good bit was the bit where you took the piss out of the kid because that's who you are. You're kind of a bit sarcastic, bit on the edge, and the kid enjoyed it. That's and amazing to learn. I needed that early to be on, more myself. Yeah, that's a, that's the thing in stand up. I've only learned in the last couple of years is like go on and be really who you are. So like now, yeah. that's why when I go on a thing and like so my thing now is to take my my thing that's like South London Council say go on there and just talk about how like the industry made you try to be that. Like yeah. that's that's the interesting thing. Yeah, don't go on there and you know go on there and do those sort of things but and the beatings at school I'd like to hear more about on stage if possible Elliot <laughs> uh, I, was, I, just, I was just mouthy but not very fast yeah um, but that's like that job but that's how it is like most people I've met in this industry who have got somewhere they haven't come in through like like education sort of got you to where you needed to be but the oh but by the, chance but, 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 but yeah or, like or by runner, my own decision to be honest decision. making that film yeah. but the runner's job there like the amount of people I meet who are a producer how'd you end up producing did you go uni nah just uh my um, mate Mike worked here and then he was like uh, we got a running job going and then mm. I did that for a little while and then one day they had a position opening and I, I sort of knew the ropes a little bit and because I knew everyone yeah. that's how I got in like uh, that's my, always my advice to people is like just get the job and again it's probably difficult now because a lot of these jobs are unpaid and stuff but like when I was working, so there's a guy James Serafinowicz, who's like yeah. an yeah. amazing writer. Mm-hmm. He got into writing because he was doing a running job. Um, he always loved writing. He was doing a running job. He was working. On, he was running for on Brasso, Chris oh, yeah. Morris. Brilliant. And one day he just went to Chris like, "I've just had an idea for a bit." And Chris went, "All right, yeah, let me have a look at it." And then the next day, Chris was like, "Do you want to come sit in the writers' room?" That's how these things yeah. happen. They don't happen because brave you, of him as well. Yeah, to go up to Chris Morris and say, oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I've, got, yeah. "I've got a really good idea, Chris." Hey, I, I can see what you're trying to do here, but this, <laughs> but that's that's kind of it, and that's what I mean by like having a dad in the industry. Kind mm. of early on, that was what it. But you still, you still had to make a good film. Sure, like you still had to be good at that thing. You know what I mean? The same way when I came into it and did gigs. I had to be, I wouldn't say I was good. I, I was not good at all. I've only recently just become good yeah, at stand In your own head. In my it doesn't own, mean other people don't Other people don't think my thing good, but now I'm at a point where I'm confident as myself as a stand-up, where for years I you might have a bit that you like doing, You might, but now I go like, oh, I can walk on, I'm, I'm good enough to be, I'm yeah. meant to be here. Yeah. Um, um, can I just, because one thing um, that I found really interesting that you talked about was... Uh, uh, feeling from the age of eight that that, that was what you were going to do, but also that it was uh, something you could do. Um, but I feel like as well as that, maybe that went unsaid a little bit, is your dad obviously must, and your mum and dad must have been incredibly supportive towards the that being a possible yeah. career to, for you as well. Because if you're, I could totally see it if it was someone else, being like, don't do what I did, son, it's too much hassle, it's too much, you know, you're, you're not guaranteed a living, you're not guaranteed this, but it must have been completely opposite to that. Yeah, that, that that's another thing that was a huge help. There's nothing sadder than when someone's parents don't like, you think of like, there'll be some amazing comedians, you know, do who, great Who are made things. to be doctors and lawyers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, or like, they'll do like, an amazing show and you're just like, their parents, like you hear people, oh yeah, my parents can't, they don't really get what I do and they'll be doing like a thousand seat theatre and parents will be like, oh, no, like it's just I don't get it right, like, right. Um, but yeah my parents were very supportive they probably wouldn't have been supportive if I was really shit right like if I if I'd went up there and just started uh, I remember this from my first gig um, so I was I was nervous and my dad was taking me there and on the way there like I told him a few routines I'd written 
And there was this one about this teacher I had, and she'd always try to teach us about Cardinal Woolsey. And the routine was just taking a picture out of like she's always saying, Well, that went, you should do that. And I went, I don't know, that's just not me. I don't I don't know too much about it. And he went, No, 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 you should you should do that. And I went there and I just said, I'm not gonna do that. No. And I didn't do it. And after the gig, my dad went, Yeah, you were right. <laughs> you shouldn't have done that. And he went, No, 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 you're right. The stuff you did worked. And uh I remember just sort of from that point, it was a really nice lesson in my first gig of like trust your gut mm -hmm. in something like whenever someone goes ah, I don't know maybe you even in the face of a, prof a successful professional comedian telling you something opposite yeah because and, and the reason the reason I know that sounds arrogant but it's it's, it's really true is because it's not him up there as me no it's me yeah I'm up there my dad goes up there and can do his thing better than I could go up there and do the thing that my dad mm -hmm. I can't do what my dad does in the sense of, you know what I mean? Yeah. Because that's not that's stuff not that I'm are. interested in. Yeah. Or as uh, And I mean in terms of material. If my dad's going to, my dad will go up there and do an amazing bit about Brexit and be able to rationalise it and be so knowledgeable about it. I can't. I The only bit I can do on Brexit would be about my view of that. I couldn't give it. Can this just be, you know what I mean? I don't care. But my dad will know everything that's going on. Or yeah. He'll know exactly who each member of the shadow cabinet is and who the cabinet is and yeah. his audience will know that. If I go up there and try and do that, it's going to look pathetic. Of course it will. But equally, if if he started talking about what it was like to be a 21-year-old now, it would be it would yeah, be the yeah, same yeah, thing. Yeah, it would yeah. be absolutely the same. Um, do you, uh, did you have uh, a good relationship in general with your dad growing up? Uh, do you feel, or do you, not or, but do you feel like the fact that he was a comedian made him kind of different to the other dads of your friends and stuff like definitely. that? Definitely. He was definitely absent for a lot of things. It was weird. Sort of when I was about 15, I fell into, I was, I was sort of hanging out with the wrong crew because where, where I did go to school, it was quite rough. Mm -hmm. I always had a bit of sense on me. Like I played on the, I played on the football team quite a bit and it was a, uh, the football team was just full of kids who were fucking just rough as fuck, you mm. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And um, it was sort of pre-gentrification of South London when I went to school, just as it was starting to happen. Yeah. Uh, like one school I went to, I left, and a week later, you can look it up, it was called Ashburton, it's now called Oasis Academy Shirley Park. They, uh, they had a school riot that made the front page of the South London press, mm. like an actual riot at the school and I'd left a week earlier and I was kind of a bit like they really, miss... they really didn't want you to leave <laughs> <laughs> but, but I, I read it I was kind of like man I missed the riot like, I would have <laughs> got a day off school <laughs> um, but uh, where he was away a lot because my dad was a single parent who brought me up oh okay um, like I, I didn't really see my mum much as a teenager okay uh, I'm sure it was, my mum's not famous so we, we don't have to give a fuck about her on this podcast <laughs> It doesn't sound like you want to give a fuck about her. <laughs> my mum's a teacher. I think everything makes sense. I'll, oh, right. So, yeah. Okay. You've said, you've said as, as much as you want to and enough to give us the vision of how that worked out. Um, so I grew up, uh, when I was sort of hanging about with the wrong crowd quite a bit because I wanted to be popular, mm -hmm. um, uh, they they were nice. They were they were really nice kids. They were just they didn't. They just came from like us, you know, single parent homes. They were uh, had felt like they had to fit into this South London bravado, and I was doing it as well. Except I had a bit more sense on me because I knew there was other things in life, mm. and I don't think some of them did. Uh, I would hang around with my dad, so I wouldn't hang out with my dad. So my dad would be away on tour. And then I'll just be like, well, no one's at home or anything. I'm not going to go home. I'm just going to hang out with the kids after school. I think I've made that clear. I've said it about eight times. Mm. 
uh, and we'd would go do stupid things, you know. Like um, I remember this one time. I'll tell this story. We got in this uh, we got in this fight with this kid who we shouldn't have got in a fight with because his brother was like right. the guy in the area. Mm. And I don't just mean like the hard, like I mean like South London guy in the area. Yep. You know, what I mean. And we, he, my mate, got in a fight with him. I was uh, about fifteen when this happened. Got in a fight with him. My mate smacked him up. About a year goes by. We think absolutely nothing of it. And a year's gone by and we're now very different people. Mm. I mean, a new six-one got new, but I'm still good mates with this guy who yeah. smacked up this mm-hmm. kid. We're very different people now. We're in sort of sixth form. We're a bit more out of the bravado. We find ourselves, like you said, we've gone to sixth form with our things now, chatting to girls and, you, yeah. you know, and and we started like smoking weed at that point. So mm-hmm. like it was more like, hey, let's meet up a house, smoke weed. We don't have to do any of this other stuff. And we're walking through uh, Crystal Palace one day and this uh, lad came over and uh, I'll say what his name is. He was called like Ramps in the area or something. And he went, oh, you boys have to come with me. Oh, like, oh, why? He's like, you know why? You smacked up my little cousin. A year ago. A year ago, right? <laughs> and and like, he takes us and we're like, man, I know. And he turns to my mate, he goes, yo, how old are you again? And my mate's like 16. He looked at me and I looked about 12 at the time. He went, how old are you? And I went, 12. <laughs> I thought, and he's like, this guy's like 25. Takes us uh, down his bit of the state, calls up his cousin and goes like, yeah, yeah, I got a boy who smacked up, uh, who smacked up, I'll say his name, his name is Bullet. Uh, so this guy, J-Dot, who was the big guy in the area, came down and uh, basically made me sit there and like just came down with these bats, just started hitting my mate. Uh, but, like, we kind of deserved it. But I was stood there, I was kind of watching it, like, should I jump in? And it was at this moment I knew I wasn't hard because I looked yeah. at it and I went... Nah, do you know what? They've got a point. <laughs> like we shouldn't. Have yeah. And luckily, you'd a have to be got, a very brave twelve-year-old to oh, jump in exactly. at that point. Yeah. <laughs> I was just there, and I was like, I was like, what am I going to do? I'm going to jump in, and then I'm just going to be hit with a. At least, at least, I, and that's the point where you know how, like, whenever you watch like a gangster film, or like you watch Goodfellas, and you go into like Henry Hill. No, don't, don't snitch. You were there at the same time. And that's when I found out. I would be the guy in the group who snitched. <laughs> I would be the first one at any sign of trouble. Yeah. Like, you know, save it, Private Ryan, when uh, there's the knife fight, going. there's that scene where these two guys are wrestling for the knife and yeah, one of yeah. the soldiers is there just in shell shock. He, he, he's just there crying. He doesn't want to be involved with it. I would be that soldier. <laughs> That's who I would be in any of those situations. And that was... And I, I sort of went through that and that's why I thought I was like quite tough as up. But that's because my dad wasn't right. like always around. Yeah. Um, have you have you spoken to your dad since about this stuff and how you think it could have been dealt with differently? Um, I told him that story and his view on it was like kind of like yeah, well you shouldn't have got in a fight because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, he grew up in Swanley, like he grew up yeah. in a really rough area. So my dad's got this kind of like working class, like well yeah, you get you what should, you deserve. You shouldn't have got in a fight. That's, that's what do you think is going to happen? Yeah, it was really. I know it might sound like really harsh. But everyone was fine. It was all cool. Um, but it yeah, like, just hit with bats. You, Don't worry about oh, it. Oh yeah, yeah, that good. happened. Um, that would happen quite. We, there, I've got a few stories like that. We got one. Uh, there was one again. Uh, there was nearly this big uh, fight in a pub. There was this pub that used to let me and my mates in when we were like seventeen. It's completely off topic now. It's That's just, right. Don't worry. Um, and uh, they'd let us drink in there when we were seventeen. But I had a mate uh, who was like the cockiest kid in the world. Right. Like he was just full of bravado. And we're in this bar, and we we're, we're allowed to drink. Like it's amazing, and it, but it's quite a it's quite an upmarket sort of bar. But it's in it was in Crystal Palace, just as like so you'd get all you'd get like different groups of people would come in. Yeah, everyone would have their section. And my mate starts chatting up this girl, and me and my friends notice that 
her boyfriend's just gone to the toilet. Yeah. That's yeah. and she's sort of enjoying being chatted up by someone she perceives as like 18 or 19 mm. and she's probably like 30 odd. so she's kind of had a few drinks she's kind of enticing it but it's going nowhere and this guy comes back to the, from the toilet with his mate so they clearly like just been doing cocaine mm. and he goes to my mate like what the fuck are you doing and my mate doesn't go like he hasn't been in enough bars to go like sorry dude yeah. read the situation realize, wrong. Yeah. my bad man there's nothing to be aggro about I, I apologise my mate's like 17 and he's like you know like one of the biggest kids in school but he's not a big kid in terms of the pub and uh, he's like his immediate response he went who the fuck are you the pub police just making sure I can't talk to people the pub Gestapo Jesus. and like it just nearly <laughs> nearly like oh kicked God. and it was like that point it was like we went from being these sort of like cocky 17 year olds to seeing these guys faces to being like hey Jay man I yeah, don't let's get <laughs> let's get how quick were you out the door of that pub um we went we went outside and we were kind of like we were doing that thing of like what 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 but we weren't going to do anything like yeah. we were because they were just like 30 year old dudes who weren't going to fuck about yeah like uh yeah. No, no one got hit in that story, actually, when I come to think well, of it. Well, that's good. That is a good... I'm, wor- I'm worried about you, Elliot. Um, uh, just, uh, just to go back on that thing, um, in terms of you feeling like your dad was absent, absent at times, yeah. obviously because of his work, What, what? how do you kind of mirror that up with the fact that um, he was a single parent bringing you up, so he needed to go out and work, and oh, the fact that he wasn't there, and that must have been difficult I, as I well? Didn't, I didn't ever have any, like... I, I've never had any resentment towards right. my dad for that, because I can understand, like... One of the reasons like my dad's been able to support me a little bit through comedy is because he's that he's built a life for himself. He's he's got a tour, and since doing comedy, I understand it even more. Yeah, that like the thing is when you work like a a job at the levels that my dad works it, your career comes first. Yeah. a lot of time, and sometimes you you can rationalise that as like, well, I'm earning this money and that supports the family. However, I might not be there a lot of the time. And then when you think about someone like. I mean, like how someone like McIntyre sees his family. God only knows, yeah. you know what or I mean? Or Jimmy Carr. Who, Jimmy it Carr. Seems, seems to me like maybe Jimmy doesn't like it, like his, his, <laughs> his home life that much. Does he, Jimmy have a family? No, he's, he, he has a partner, doesn't he? But he, he is just constantly on tour the whole time. But she, I think, I imagine she knew what she was getting into. No, definitely, yeah. I think I think that's also a thing of like, uh, like my might, dad's... No, the relationship maybe works best like that. that you know, long... Was, bit was, of your dad, was your dad about... Mom, no, no, my, no. My mum and dad uh, kind of split up before I even remember. So, right, yeah. Uh, but I, but my stepdad Angus was, yeah. and the reason why I'm doing this uh, podcast is because of my relationship with both Angus, who was obviously famous, and then my mum and dad, who had previously had a bit of fame and stuff. Right. But so he was more like my father figure, and he's the reason why my whole family are musicians, but uh, I'm into sport and comedy because from when I was like three to thirteen, Angus was living with me. Right, okay. So, um, I had a father figure, but it wasn't my dad. So, that, you know, it, yeah. that makes that makes my relationship with my dad actually kind of... I've always kind of described him as more like a cool older brother right, who, who yeah. talks about the music industry and, uh, you know, loved loved a bit of coke and stuff. Right, yeah, okay. Because is the music industry... The music industry is by far cooler than the comedy industry in terms of, like... In, like, even let's go, go down the route of, like, in terms of, like, yeah, I'm going to... Playing music and I, even if you're a low level guy at pub 
with guitar who's been booked to do it, you will get more girls than <laughs> professional stand-up comedian. It is by far stand-up comedy is one above mime. Is that how? Is that <laughs> how like we're just above poetry? We're just a bit. We, we there are probably poets out there who get more girls than like the most famous comedian. I'm intrigued as to is that how we determine what cool is by how many yeah, girls uh, we get? Uh, uh, cool, cool is determined by the parties <laughs> and uh, like you, like in the music industry. If you turn up to a music party. I'm going to be like, well, people are going to be doing blow. There's going to be people getting... I'm imagining like a Motley crew kind yeah. of like party. Mm. You turn up to a stand-up comedian party, <laughs> there's going to be like <laughs> one line of coke and everyone's just going to be talking about how someone doesn't book them and someone else is a cunt. That, that's a stand-up comedy party. And they're sharing the line of coke. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or they're doing what I was doing. They're watching shit as stand-up comedians on YouTube. That's a stand-up comedy party. Oh, that's, I've, I've really got that vision. I, I will say I've been to I've been to a few music business parties, and it's the main difference between music industry parties and stand up parties is music industry people really really um, take themselves incredibly seriously, right? Incredibly seriously. So yeah, maybe the mountain of cocaine is slightly bigger, but my God, are they talking about how great they all are? And then the stand up one is possibly a little bit more insecure, and everyone's yeah. just like, why is this person doing better than I'm doing, and and stuff like that. But uh, uh, and, yeah. and the, I think the one line of coke is probably pretty. And, uh, and the stand up party right. as well is like if you make them like I've like you sit down with like my mates or something like stand up comics are relentless, man. Like if you even like dare like trip up the stairs the next 30 minutes of your life you're going to be made to be insecure <laughs> about the way you walk upstairs you didn't know you had to be insecure walking upstairs but all of a sudden you now have a complex because they found it <laughs> the way I describe comedians is with my mates right like we're, we were in a whatsapp group we're relentless for each other like yeah. if you just relentless but I that I really enjoy it I think the one important thing and it's sad to see it go in stand up comedy is bullying each other right like you have to bully each other and it's done with love because what what bullying in comedy is is like we're gonna do far worse to you in here mm. than can ever be done to you on stage yeah so when you're on stage and that guy's just shouting the basics most like your shit whatever or mm. get, get whatever or you've come, heard it all before some lad bible-ish yeah. recycled banter it's like okay well for example like there's uh, Daniel Sloss and Kai Humphreys are back there and my mate Ryan Cullen who are just relentless, amazing at just, mm. Ryan will just find something you do and just destroy you for it. You, it's like you're not gonna, you're not gonna phase me and it's done with love. Yeah. You're accepted. Don't worry, you're one of us. If you yeah. walk into a green room and even if you don't know all the comics and you go out and have a set and they come back and they start giving you shit about something, mm. you're one of us. You're, you're cool and that's, that's what I think I really enjoy as the camaraderie in comedy because it's also a thing of like we are deeply insecure. We are all of this, but this is something that no one else does to this level of mm -hmm. like just berate you for this. And the way I describe comments is we're usually 99.9% .9 of things of jokes you can do about us does not bother us. Even if it's supposed that I imagine if someone wants to go for you and like that you talk about your dad being absent in your life, you can openly admit that on a podcast. Sure, sure. So you're probably cool with it. But there'll be a 0.1% that the comics are looking for. And once they find it, it's like they've just found that little chink in your armor and right. it just sets you and they go, there's the thing. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? So that's um 
that is quite an it's quite an alpha. It feels like quite a male-y thing. How how in your experience of writers' rooms and hanging out with female comics, do you feel like they're similar or or yeah. it's different? Yeah, female female comics is um, comics comics are comics. You know, it's very similar. Um, I'd say the one thing you you can't do, and this is definitely a male to female thing in general. Don't go for a woman's looks, right? <laughs> like because you, you, if we go down to it, you live in a society that is patriarchal, where women are made to feel like everything. You look at adverts for women's looks; mm. it's, it's just like you need to look like this, you need to do this. Every celebrity in your life is this. Whereas the male complex is like, you show me a pair of boxes modelled by Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't go, oh, he's got a better body than me. I go, man, maybe if I buy them, I could play for Real Madrid still. Right, like right, I still right, right. think like that's how my male ego works. Yeah. Um, there must be some male comedians though who probably don't want to be have the piss taken about how they look as well though I can think of uh, a few yeah 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 it, it, it depends about their weight on, particularly yeah probably. it depends on who it who it is I don't mean like walk into a green room and just do that to anyone you've yeah. got to have your you've got to, it's, you've got to have your pals yeah uh, have you got um, examples of where uh, people have treated you differently because of your dad's fame or success that you can think of um yeah other other comedians um, have definitely been. I wouldn't say neither. They've just been a bit more like, "Oh, I'm a I'm a fan of your dad's," and they'll like talk mm-hmm. to me about it. Okay. Um, yeah, but ne- never, never negatively. Never negatively. Not I can recall. If it would have happened negatively, it wouldn't. They wouldn't have said because of who. I, I never got on with your dad. Um, actually. The only one I can think of is uh, I'm a huge Jim Jeffries fan, and I got to meet Jim. I was really, really, really happy to meet Jim, mm-hmm. and like he, he found out, and then he just told me a story. He was like, "Oh man, one time I, I met your dad, and he was just a bit dismissive, and it, oh, it really hurt me." And I was like, "Oh, oh my god!" Like, and I was all of a sudden like there apologizing to Jim yeah. Jeffries, and then I told my dad about it, and my dad like was like, "Oh god, my dad felt really bad," <laughs> and then I was like there with like my comedy hero, like having to apologize. You became that, the mediator that, between that, your dad that, and that Jim was Jeffries. one time, but I think I, I and I say that, and like I think I think that happened because uh, it might have been like my dad's thing is like. Oh, I might have just been about to go on stage or something that was like my dad's because my dad's never really I've never seen my dad be dismissive to people okay. when they've come up to him mm-hmm. so I think like I don't know I think it might have been one of those things where in Jim's head yeah. he was dismissed but in my dad's head he was like hey man I'll do, could I talk to you afterwards I'm just yeah. about to go on it was no, something like that like me and Rob Beckett back in the day yeah 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 it was just the thing um, and uh, you I, you've talked quite a lot I think uh, that I've seen on Twitter and maybe in some other podcasts and even yeah. here about um, your ADHD and mental health and stuff. Do you feel like growing up around fame and your dad being in the public eye has affected you in any way in terms of relationships, mental health, that kind of stuff? Uh, yeah, it's definitely made me very narcissistic. Okay. It's definitely made me... Uh, I'm having to unlearn what I've learned is that success isn't measured in fame or money. Success comes from a... a sounds very wanky, a deeper place. You know, no matter how... If if you told me several years ago I'd be where I am in comedy, I'd be like, wow, that's cool. And now I'm here. And I'm still thinking like I was a few years ago. I'm like, well, I need to get to here. Mm-hmm. I need to get to here. Mm-hmm. I need to do this. And that's a, I think that's a very unhealthy attitude to have. Mm. And I saw that attitude growing up, uh, which is why I have it, which is like, oh, you need to get to this. And not in, I'm not in competition with my dad at all. Like mm. I've never, ever, the one, I'm, I'm very odd in that way. Like I'm quite good with that. Uh, but uh, that, that is definitely, you've got to become this, that, and the other to be a success. 
uh, and is that, is that a terrible attitude? Is that self aware? Is that awareness of that something you've unraveled through therapy or just through experience and time? Um, just just the last like six seven months, I've realised like okay, nothing's ever going to be enough. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't just come from my dad. That comes from like I grew up in the. I'm part of the generation on Instagram where everyone's got a yeah. private jet and this that and everyone yeah. everyone only shows the good bits of their lives now. So you're only seeing the good bits of people's lives. Mm-hmm. So. You're not seeing a bit where, you know, you see some singer going like, look, I've I'm, I'm got this car and that. You're not seeing them like, you know, have a horrible set in front of eight people and they, they have to just sit around. But you know what it's like in, in comedy, man? Like uh, uh, the best bit of advice I ever heard was not advice that was given to me. And it was from Daniel Sloss. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just saw him play uh, 1200, to 1,200 people at the O2 Kennish Forum. And a couple of weeks later, he was going around. He was just starting to do like 1,200 seaters and 1,000 seaters. And I saw him come on stage and he went up to Kai Humphreys and he went, man, do you remember when we played to eight people in Leeds? Mm. And that was like a big mindset change for me. And like, everyone has to do that. To get there. Everyone has to do that gig where you go, this is depressing. Yeah. <laughs> in my experience, many, many of those. Yeah, gigs, yeah, yeah. But you, you have, you will have like several hundred of those stories. Yeah. yeah. Um, I really look forward to my... 1200 seater gig where at the end I'm talking about the time I was thrown off stage by the MC uh, underneath uh, did you ever do that back in the day there was a famous like underneath the Thistle Hotel at Leicester Square gig oh my it was god booked, was this... yeah it was booked by a, a guy who was uh, putting out flyers Inky with, like, Jones yeah 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 the Inky Jones I never gig, did yeah. it I always heard about that the guy run yeah. a con gig where he'd be like he would be like, Lee Evans is on. Yeah, and so a load he'd, of tourists he'd, fly, he'd fly a Leicester Square with uh, a flyer with like Lee Evans, Michael McIntyre, all those on it. Yeah. And then the time I did it, you're taken downstairs under the Thistle Hotel to uh, a kitchen, right? Yeah. Where the MC talks to you. And you're like eight open micers, right? And he's like, here are the things you're not allowed to talk about. Uh, you're not allowed to talk about the cost of the tickets. You're not allowed to talk about the fact that everyone in the audience is foreign. You're not allowed to talk about the fact that you're not being paid, et cetera, et cetera. And I was like still a very raw um, comedian, let's put it that way. Rob would definitely describe me as uh, just talking about disgusting stuff. Right, yeah. Uh, and it was just like red rag to a bull. And I was just like, well, that, they're the things that I'm going to start talking about. You're a comic, man. That's, well, there that, you go. That, that's what I mean. That's what I was trying to say, explain yeah. earlier. Is like the minute you tell me... What not to do. What not to do. Mm-hmm. Fuck you, I'm going to do it because it's yeah. funny. It's funnier then. For some, it makes it more exciting because there's an act of rebellion to it. Yeah. Well, so then the MC dragged me off. And I never knew if the MC was Inky Jones or someone employed by Inky Jones. But he dragged me off. And, you know, what a gig, though, for that for Inky Jones because he was charging everyone 15 quid and they were all foreigners and didn't know what the fuck yeah. was, was going on He got he got, done by the, he got done by HMRC. Yeah, I saw, I saw on tour, so that was an enjoyable moment. It kind of upsets me that he, I know what he did was bad for the industry, but I kind of just think like... You like his chutzpah. I just liked the fact that he was doing it, like that he was just out there. It's, like you know some of those comedy yeah. promoters that are so br- like so brave like they just don't give a shit I'm going to pretend that M- McIntyre is on yeah, here tonight yeah, yeah. and there's going to be 100 t- or so tourists who come in and we're going to do several shows and then I'm just going to put open spots on and then just tell him, well, yeah, yeah, he didn't turn up. Yeah, I kind of respect you, you, res- you respect the brazenness of it, um, but at the time, certainly, uh, it was it was above my pay grade, and therefore I wasn't <laughs> able to deal with it in the way I should have done. Or maybe I did no, do it you the right you way. You dealt with know. that exactly as you should have done. Um, what is the most unusual thing that has happened to you as a result of being Mark Steele's son? 
nothing this is kind of like I've not had mm. I'm sure your other guests would have had a great story my dad isn't my dad when he was famous enough he's not hugely famous anymore like uh, he's famous to radio that is going to cut deep but he's but he's he's not he's well known yeah yeah but he's not like I've never got a story of like I've mm. walked into Gucci and they've gone this is Mark Steele's <laughs> son they've nobody yeah. It's like low. Have any dress you want, Elliot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like, it's never. I suppose it's like nothing you, springs to mind. So, do you feel like he's he's kind of trod the line in your childhood of being um, on TV, but never, you know, never up to a level where you'd say famous, more like very well, successful of his, in his of field his, of his own choice. He didn't want to be celebrity. My dad's got yeah. stories, funnily enough, about Richard Maley, Right, he must he, have been offered a lot of a lot of things to make him a celebrity. Actually. Yeah, he just never, ever, ever really wanted to be celebrity. He yeah. never wanted like red carpet. Do this that. That isn't what. That isn't what he wants. Which is kind of what you got to do when you're were at his level of the thing. To you've got to, you know. I'm at this red carpet event, mm-hmm. then I'm at this party, then I'm at... you kind of got to do that. My dad's always just been like, eh, yeah. I don't want to. And is that something you'll you'll be happier to do than your dad dad was, do you think? Um, let's, say you get offered, like, let's say you get offered I'm a Celebrity, like Joel Domit did. No, would you I, take would, it? I would never do I'm a Celebrity. Why is that? Because uh, how... Right, fuck Joel, innit? Hold on, how about this? How about uh, this? I'm the producer of I'm a Celebrity, Elliot, and I've got a suitcase here and it's got £75,000 in it. Seventy-five thousand pounds, but then how? How could I go? And this is easy to say in a theoretical situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, the better choice would be like it's an advert, yeah, or something. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'd be offered something like I'm a celebrity. I would like to think my agent would turn it down and never let me know he got uh, okay, it. Okay, that's interesting. Because uh, I think how can I go on stage and talk about the things I want to talk about when you've seen me on I'm a celebrity chewing, also the, chewing a bull's penis also the audience that that would bring so I did an audition for an ITV two show voiceover mm-hmm. and I went in I was doing it and I knew I wasn't going to get it because I sucked at it and I was so glad I was sucking at it because I just knew I wasn't going to be offered it mm-hmm. um, and the, the the reason for that is because I can't I don't want some like ITV two audience like turning up yeah if you know what I mean yeah, yeah. like I don't if I want to go on and talk about certain things that are like heavier topics yeah if you've seen me on a show mm-hmm. where I'm not doing that that is then uh don't get me wrong I mean like do primetime shows do those kind of things mm-hmm. it, but I wouldn't if I if I did that and then I had an audience turn up who were like hey he's gonna do something about that and then I've got like a 10 minute bit uh, like I do in my show about like how internet porn has fucked up an entire generation of people yeah. and really yeah. go into it. Yeah, there might be a few people from that and another couple of people going, "This is heavy from the guy who yeah. ate kangaroo bollocks." Yeah, <laughs> no, that's true. And do you know what? Dare I say it? And feel free to disagree, yeah. but that seems like it's got a bit of your dad in it, like your dad's experience, your dad's so. education in in you, an, yeah. an artist, you know, an artist comedian what, rather than a what we were talking comedy about to be famous of knowing yourself. Mm. That is uh, that is part of it. Don't try to be something. I look awkward on those shows. Like I've done auditions for things like that. I look awkward when I'm stood there and they have to be. I'm deeply cynical. I would like turning up and being like, 
this sucks. You know what I mean? Isn't this stupid? Like, there's a there's a war in Syria. I hope you do that in front of the, the series producer. Yeah, there's a war in Syria at the moment. But yeah, cool. I'm gonna stand here and why am I? Why are you? Why are you? Anyone who comes to this is stupid. But I'm more stupid for being on it. Like I like coming from that angle. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, yeah, that doesn't get you the part. <laughs> from my experience, that, uh, that wouldn't make me give you the part either. <laughs> That's really funny. Um, okay, and we end on one question always that we ask. If yeah. You could live your life all over again, but without having had a famous father, would you swap? Only if I could go with someone more famous. <laughs> yeah, go <laughs> like on. Someone like, <laughs> like George Clooney or someone, <laughs> someone that's like people, someone that will get me something from being famous. It's a, this is the most I've had out of my dad's fame, is this podcast. <laughs> this is it. I'm so pleased. <laughs> this, this I'm so pleased that we've I'm, finally I'm, given I'm, you what you want to. I'm I've so sorry that. Had, this, is my, this is my walk into Gucci and take what you want. Sir. Listen, Elliot, no offense to your dad, but I'd rather you'd be George Clooney's <laughs> son as well. Uh, <laughs> Um, don't tell him don't tell him um, Elliot is there anything you'd like to plug that's coming up or your so, um, Instagram Twitter follow, account follow me like on that? Instagram I'm at Elliot Still and on Twitter at Elliot Still Calm. I'll be uh, posting on my gigs when I've got my solo dates and stuff that I'm just sorting out at the moment that I'd love people to come to Brilliant. and see my stuff my dad's not going to be there so don't even ask go fuck yourself but, uh, <laughs> but yeah oh, thank you so much for having no, me no mate thank you so fun. much for coming on can I also say to the listeners thank you so much for listening uh, press the subscribe button follow us on Insta Almost Famous the podcast and on Twitter pod Almost Famous and uh, make sure you tune in for our next episode thanks once again Elliot and goodbye 